Welcome to the Drawdown Agenda podcast, a collaboration between the Sustainability Agenda and Drawdown, a truly inspiring project that ranks and evaluates the 100 most powerful carbon reduction solutions that can help us achieve drawdown when greenhouse gas concentrations peak and begin to fall. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading drawdown researchers who have worked to identify and measure different drawdown solutions. We explore the research, discuss how these solutions work in practice, and learn how we can take collective action to achieve drawdown and help reverse global warming. A lot of the investments that I think are required and a lot of the capital formations that are required are patient and uh, more modest in return expectations, which makes us think about how we think about things like risk. Um, what's the risk of making these investments and what's the return expectation that we place on them compared to what's the risk of not making these investments? I think our, uh, there's an expectation that we associate with risk that is betrayed by reality, especially over long periods of time. I'm very pleased today to welcome Kevin Bayock onto the podcast. Kevin serves the Senior Financial Fellow at Project Drawdown, developing the business case to address climate change through existing practices and technologies. He's a partner at Lyft Economy, accelerating social enterprises and facilitating investment into highly beneficial impact organisations. So thank you very much, Kevin, for taking the time today to speak to the Drawdown Agenda. Thank you for having me. So you're a uh, finance guy, uh, a numbers guy, and uh, play a key role in working out the financial implications of the various solutions and, and, and scenarios in Drawdown. Can you tell me a little bit about your background, Kevin, and how you got involved? Sure, absolutely. I mean, my background doesn't go through kind of traditional finance. It actually goes through kind of operating and entrepreneurship, starting enterprises, you know, raising capital, hiring teams, building products, uh, selling companies. And that's the way in which I developed some of the modeling skills and understanding of how to put finance into operation in the world for real stuff, actually things happening on the ground. Uh, I got involved in Drawdown, I think, because after starting a number of enterprises, I, I took a turn and went into ecosystemic design almost on an, on an academic approach. I started something called the Urban Permaculture Institute and uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area and studied a number of aspects of human settlement design that could benefit all life and in doing so be, you could say, solutions to global warming. So everything from energy efficiency in the built environment to diversified renewable energy to uh, land use, uh, agricultural systems, and even consumption patterns, our habits, behaviors, and norms that create emissions or not. And in that study, I, you know, became aware of the breadth of possibilities uh, and built relationships with some of the principals uh, who conceived of the Drawdown Project, Paul Hawken, Amanda Joy Ravenhill in particular. And when the project really kicked off, I kind of reached out to them and said, hey, this is the type of thing that I'm familiar with all of these solutions. I don't need to really gain an understanding of what they are. 
Uh, I have a background in modeling and understanding the kind of cost implications and the potential returns and could help produce some of the outcomes that could be valuable to the global investment community. And that was one of the goals of the project is actually to create, uh, you know, a body of work that's not only valuable to policymakers, not only valuable to the general global citizen, uh, but also something that is meaningful for the global investment community. And so they were looking for help in that area and through relationships with some of the principals involved. um, That's how I got drafted onto the team. Great, great. Now, the solutions in Drawdown are uh, economically viable. And uh, I guess, in other words, the, the underlying it is this idea that there's a business case. How obvious is that? Or uh, to what extent does that rule out lots of things or rule out a small number of things? Right. And so what we mean by there's a there is a business case or that they're financially viable is that the selection of what solutions to include in the analysis, which solutions to include in the book versus which ones to exclude, we had some criteria. And the criteria that is meaningful in terms of the business case or financial viability is that there was a burden of proof that there was already an accepted market adoption of a certain degree. And so you may note in the book that there's a whole set of solutions 20 that are in the book that are listed as coming attractions. One of the reasons why a particular solution might be listed as a coming attraction is because it lacks the market adoption, the existing market adoption. Another reason could be that there's not enough peer review research yet on the uh, impact of those solutions. But this burden of proof that the solution is can already be adopted at least to some level in different parts of the world uh, in terms of penetration into its addressable market uh, is kind of the marker for financial viability of the solutions that were selected. Great, great. Now, a um, hundred solutions. Um, do you have a sense of the magnitude overall of the cost benefit of these solutions in aggregate? There is, the book provides kind of a table of analysis um, and kind of going off memory here, but the, there's the first to understand the, the figures in the book that are presented, which are the, called the cumulative first cost. This is kind of the cost of installing or implementing plus replacing at the end of life any of the solutions over the study period. So if you're, if you recall from the book, the book is looking at a, a period from 2020 to 2050. Yes, yeah. And for any particular solution, there's a certain amount of installation and implementation of a solution, and there's costs associated with that. And for those costs that were modeled, I believe the total aggregate figure of the cumulative first cost was something around $130 trillion or $129 trillion, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And then the marginal first cost, that's comparing the cost of doing the solutions as compared to doing the business as usual type of uh, solution or the business as usual practice that would meet the utility need that the solution would meet. And so if you subtract out the cost that humanity otherwise would have endeavored to spend, if you will, uh, that 129 trillion drops to 27.5 trillion. So the additionality, the marginal 
kind of first cost of installation and implementation would be something around 27, 28 trillion. And just also for context for listeners, the in the book, there's three scenarios that are modeled, three core scenarios that are modeled for across all the solutions in the integrated approach. And there's the, the first scenario we call the, the kind of the feasibility uh, feasible scenario, there's a drawdown scenario, and then there's kind of an optimal scenario. And the numbers I'm coding here are from the first scenario, the feasible scenario, uh, which is the numbers that are presented in the book uh, associated with each of the solutions on the per page type of write-up. Now, those are the costs kind of out of pocket for humanity. And those are, you know, significant numbers, obviously, um, but over that 30-year period to note yes. when you compare it, compare it to global GDP. Now, the other numbers that we captured in financial uh, terms were be a net operating savings. So some, most, but not all of the solutions when implemented, at least over time, result in a operating uh, savings. A good example of that would be any of the uh, diversified renewable energy solutions generating electricity from solar photovoltaics, for example, the fuel cost, of course, is free. It's sun sunlight, you know, effectively free. And the compared to the cost of either fracking or, um, you know, mining for uh, coal and the production of the fuel source, the, the purchase of the fuel source, the refining of the fuel source and all the transportation involved in that, there's a burden of cost to that fuel whereas sunlight is effectively free, though there are, of course, um, maintenance costs and so forth. So the net operating savings of all the solutions in aggregate comes out to about 73 or 74, um, some of this is by memory, tr trillion dollars. So in total, you, you spend 27.5 trillion additionally to what you otherwise would have spent in a business as usual kind of counterfactual scenario, and then you save 74 trillion dollars uh, for just over that 2020 to 2050 period. Now, it's also true that implementing those solutions, any solution, for example, implemented in 2049 or 2048, there's a lifetime of savings that hasn't been captured in that number. So we did do the analysis of what would be the lifetime savings of those investments. So again, if you invest 27.5 trillion over those 30 years, um, additionality, the 27.5 trillion, the lifetime savings that would result from those outcomes, we calculated to about 146 trillion. Um, now you can discount the, those future cash flows into kind of a net present value uh, with different discount rates applied to the different solutions. And that number comes out to about 13, 13.5 or 14 trillion. And so these are significant upside benefits from an economic perspective of the savings that would accrue just in pure financial terms. Um, and full disclosure, that's kind of strictly using data related to the solutions themselves without kind of engaging in some of the economic complexity of multiplier effects uh, that could relate to some of the solutions, how those solutions trickle through to either vocational or job creation or to health savings. Uh, there's a number of potential uh, impacts that are ancillary and related to the that cascade from the actual implementation of many of these solutions 
that are not captured in some of that analysis. So you could say this is somewhat of a simplified analysis, but still I think most useful, I think the aggregate numbers in, in all candor, uh, these big cost numbers are less useful than looking at the proportionality or the ratio or the, re the relative kind of costs between some of the solutions and their relative impact. I think that's where the numbers that Drawdown produce because they are um, in the analysis we were able to do with the time that we had to, for the book, they're, they're fairly simple. And there's, we are developing more economic complexity into some of the additional iterations of the, the research now. Right, right. Can you explain wh what, what you mean when you talk about the relative dimension? By relative, it, the book enables, say, somebody who is starting a, uh, some type of fund, depending on what kind of asset class they were using to actually place capital uh, into some of these solutions, whether you're a state or some type of private fund. Uh, you might look at your area of focus and be able to compare very disparate solutions from and use a fairly simple but meaningful financial analysis, um, say, even within your area of focus. So an example would be you could compare the, the potential greenhouse gas emissions reduction impact of Wind, onshore wind turbines versus the greenhouse gas reductions impact of solar farms. And then you could also look at in the large aggregate numbers, not per specific site implementation numbers, but in large aggregate numbers, what is the relative uh, net operating savings or the lifetime savings NPV of those two solutions and it turns out they're quite different. Um, in terms of the, the net present value of those savings based on the, the analysis we did. And so that could inform the, the hypothesis or the focus of a particular fund or, the, or of a state government in terms of its actions when it looks at a financial perspective. Now, depending on asset classes, planning on 30-year or 50-year cycles is not uh, It de totally depends on who the actor is in terms of the global finance community. Right. Um, and a lot of the global finance community would probably be looking for regionalization and or site-specific implementation numbers. And that's not what the drawdown's analysis is decidedly global in scope um, because no, nobody had ever done that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Can you explain uh, for, for our listeners what you're doing when you're looking at the net present value? What's the underlying question you're asking there? When we have uh, the the basic numbers of that we the results that we put out the net operating savings the lifetime savings and then the net present value of those lifetime savings those lifetime savings are looking at the operating savings that would accrue over the lifetime of those installations of solutions and practices through the period twenty twenty to twenty fifty so. Those once you install something, it's going to continue creating operating savings as compared to whatever the reference or business as usual practice or solution uh, would you know otherwise cost. And 
that aggregate number of lifetime savings, I think, is less useful unless you discount it down to what the the present value of those savings would be. That's a term that in the financial community allows us to kind of compare different investments uh, in a more apples to apples way. Yes. So is the underlying idea that a pound tomorrow is worth more than a pound in 10 years and that you try and adjust the figures to take into account the, the fact that you've got to wait 10 years and there might be risk associated with that as well? Risk and, yeah, and comparative uh, uh, opportunity costs. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, now, there's two sides of the, the equation. One is the costs and, uh, as you say, the, the savings. As far as the costs are concerned, I guess probably easier to uh, model and, and forecast well, the tricky part about all of this is that in the literature review and the analysis of the solutions, there's a couple tricky parts. One is that you're looking at the the peer reviewed literature that has either case analysis or sometimes meta analysis of variables like the cost of any one of the solutions. And there's some analysis that's required as to the boundaries. So each, say, research paper or every analysis might start at a different point in terms of what they're measuring the costs of. So there's a, a preliminary step in gathering the data in the literature review of kind of parsing through the boundaries of the analysis and what is being included in the particular cost. Of course, the costs also vary sometimes substantially in different places in the world. And so if you have a study that came out of India compared to a study that came out of Brazil, they might have a cost figure to compare against each other. But we have to somehow analyze the and analyze the price purchasing power of the currencies and then do some kind of transforms to uh, a, a normalized cost so that the when we're when we when we actually do some statistical analysis of the numbers we're using kind of apples to apples we're kind of comparing the same things and so that required quite a bit of rigor in looking at the variables that are coming from the studies analyzing their boundaries transforming the numbers um, there's also kind of looking at inflation and adjustments. So a number of adjustments needed to be created and then doing some st statistical analysis to arrive at this is the average or mean cost of uh, or whatever the solution is. And so that that's kind of the first step. Uh, and then it is relatively simple from that moment. <laughs> so when, once you actually have, have a number, then w with the drawdown modeling, which has been discussed in this podcast before, is that you have the uh, adoption, which is a, just a, a number, a an adoption prognostication, again, referenced on peer review literature and other uh, assumptions and guidelines as how to create a, an adoption forecast over the period of study. And then, it's a, it's, and then from there, it's simple multiplication, really, multiplying the cost of installations against the... Um, the adoption. The trickier part from there, just for some of the "quote unquote" sausage making or details, is uh, the model is that you run into a problem where there's differing lifetimes um, in different regions and different considerations about how long until a unit or an installation needs to say be replaced. 
And so a certain analysis needs to be made around that. And so to incorporate the replacement costs, because if we just did the costs one time and didn't account for any replacements that happen over the 30 year period, we would be uh, underestimating the actual burden. I think what just makes the analysis more rigorous and interesting for humanity is that we endeavored to not only analyze the costs of the solutions, but then compare them to what it would be to not do those if we took the business as usual approach. So we had to identify what that is and what the costs of not pursuing the co-generation or household and industrial recycling or landfill methane. We had to look at all the solutions and say, if we did not do those things, what would the cost be? And again, compare those and kind of subtract those out. And that's why I, you know, the, marginal first cost uh, is, is the result that shows up um, in the book tables. Right. I think that's a very valuable figure. Now, yeah, looking at, at the savings, as you say, the net savings, can we take an example? I'm not sure I fully get the picture of how, for example, if you took, let's say, bamboo or something like that, how, mm-hmm. how do you start to think about uh, assessing the uh, savings there? It's a good question. So for the land use and a number of the agricultural solutions, the financial uh, data was less than we had hoped. Not It's not consistent across the, the field. So in the analysis of the various land use and agriculture and food system solutions, some of them had uh, data on the say the cost of implementing the costs of operating and the net additional yield so we have in drawdown a fairly complex what we call a yield model and the yield model uh, enables us to look at agricultural yields and the potential increase of yields from the adoption of certain solutions Similarly, in some cases, the uh, agricultural land use or land use solution will have a, rather than figures to analyze in terms of additional yield, the figures will be reported in terms of net, uh, additional net profit from a particular per hectare or even from a farm, farmer perspective. Um, at that agency, and so we have to again normalize those figures. So we got we got different or a diverse and variable nature of data to look at from the literature. And so when you look at something like bamboo, uh, there's not necessarily an actual figure related to savings per se that bamboo creates um, compared to the um, alternative. Uh, what you get in in general is uh, potentially a net um, profit from the activity of, of bamboo would be an example. Um, so that you, you have uh, some type of custom modeling of the additional additionality of net net profit that could come off, and from there we were able to develop uh, and normalize across the types of solutions from reduction and replacement solutions to land use and agriculture solutions. We bundled that, that kind of 
additionality into the net operating savings just to suggest that if you did operate uh, over time in the implementation of Bamboo, that additional net profit could be described as an operating savings, an operating benefit, if you will. I'm with you. I'm with you. That's uh, very interesting. Um, and overall, as you mentioned, overall, the there are you know significant savings. Were there a significant number of solutions that didn't offer savings? I, I know that there's some that were difficult to calculate or, or you didn't come up with a figure. Um, and to what extent did you discover things, shall we say, that you, you didn't know before maybe about about the kind of uh, financial financial returns or just the f- distribution of, of, of monies generally? Sure. The first question, there are a, a, a few solutions that do not, uh, that we, in the analysis of the data, do not result in a net operating savings, meaning that the adoption of the solution comes at a cost to, a net cost to humanity. And uh, one of the examples of that would be, um, an, an important one would be refrigerant management, listed as the number one solution in the book in terms of its potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to impact global warming. It comes at a net cost to humanity to implement, uh, which is really, uh, I think, important for humanity to grapple with. Um, and, uh, you know, there's reasons to potentially be optimistic um, about, about that, that because uh, humanity faced a similar challenge with the uh, signing of the Montreal Protocol for looking at the ozone layer. And um, we were effective in humanity to make a, an agreement and to actually solve a problem there. And or address a concern there. And I think that's something that uh, we can be optimistic about, but I think that's an important thing to grapple with. There are other solutions, just to name a few, that do show um, net operating uh, costs, at least if not in the lifetime analysis, at least in the uh, period of study, wave and tidal uh, energy um, uh, electricity generation has a net operating uh, net cost um, in the initial analysis, uh, as an example. And I was a little bit surprised by that, um, as an example of some of the surprises that came out. Other ones that kind of come at a potential, that have a marginal first cost that is actually higher than the uh, uh, or less that there's an there's another surprises would be where the marginal first cost is less than the alternative. Um, one of the solutions we have is called alternative cements, this kind of high fly ash content uh, within cement. And the actual cost of implementing that solution is less than the business as usual, which um, is a, you know, gives humanity a very self-evident use case or business case wherever the, the cost is actually um, less. Some of the trickier ones that are interesting to look at the financial scenario where there are some surprises, at least for me, were in uh, bike infrastructure and some of the transportation um, analysis, some of the transportation solutions. The um, cost of bike infrastructure uh, in terms of its marginal first cost compared to uh, having 
more passenger kilometers being through cars is uh, had, produces an, an enormous uh, potential savings uh, for humanity if we looked at more bicycle infrastructure. Even though there is a cost burden up front, it uh, compare when you compare it to the business as usual alternatives uh, in terms of car infrastructure, the huge savings. Um, those are some of the examples of things that were surprising to me. Maybe they're self-evident to others. Yes, yes. It's interesting. I mean, how well established is the idea that the that, that so-called win-win scenarios in associated with uh, reducing carbon emissions? I mean, is, is that an idea that's generally in the air or not? Well, I think the that's where I think the the analysis the complexity of the analysis and the global nature of it uh, betray some of the potential benefits. So I mean, Paul is um, Paul Hawkins so brilliant in saying, you know, changing our perspective is global warming something that's happening to us or is it something that's happening for us? And if you take that, if it's happening for us, you know, there's some deep implications to that type of uh, framing of the opportunity or the challenge. And in the financial scenario, what's not presented in the book, but should be maybe obvious to a discerning, and some of it's in the written form in the book, but it's not in the numbers analysis, is this cascading uh, benefits uh, that have uh, other unmonetized either um, by financial kind of consideration, uh, things that are typically externalized and where the, the benefits are not monetized or where we could analyze the benefits with some type of economic complexity modeling. And so the examples of that would be, you know, moving away from fossil fuels in terms of electricity generation has enormous potential impacts on air quality uh, and human health and the costs associated with human health, uh, not, not to mention some of the agricultural solutions with their increases in soil carbon capture have, can have dramatic impacts on you know, maintaining soil humidity and on the hydrologic cycle, more residence time of water in the, in the soil, increasing the amount of water flows, um, in surface water features, rivers, streams, creeks, over time, which could decrease the costs of water supply for urban areas or could uh, decrease the amount of uh, catastrophic fire, which has a certain amount of costs obviously associated with it, both environmental and financial. Uh, so there's these a, a myriad of cascading potential benefits that could be analyzed. And so when you when you kind of look at these win-wins, um, most of these solutions, uh, minus just a couple, are what Paul labeled as no regrets. There's no regrets to for humanity to actually implement these solutions uh, because a number of the benefits, which are not even captured in the financial analysis, financial analysis is always going to be a proxy um, and a, a poor proxy at that, I think, for the potential overall benefit to humanity or to life. And so there are a number of uh, win-wins um, that are kind of 
throughout this. And I think that's the, yes, yes. the, the nature of the opportunity. Yes. What about, I guess, differential payoffs in the sense, or I'm not sure what, what the language is, but uh, distribution returns. So one person or organization makes the investment and who gets the returns or, you know, does that change taking that into account? How does that work? Because presumably if, if the benefits accrue to one group and the cost to another, you're in trouble, you know, in terms sure. of if you want to mobilize capital, if that's the goal. Yeah. Right. And so the analysis itself doesn't necessarily tell us what the financial mechanisms and covenants around capital are to identify where the benefits accrue financially. Um, the uh, There are, of course, these material benefits that I've just described as like some of the cascading benefits uh, that um, come in the form of additional additive human health, human nutrition, you know, water quality um, and uh, clean air. These are you know, some of the material benefits that um, can be shared by, you know, population at large, um, both regionally and ultimately globally. We share the same atmosphere. We're all implicated in the cycles of life and the hydrologic cycle, et cetera. So there's material benefits that can accrue to everybody. What happens to the financial benefits? What about the mobilizing capital and the, where do those returns go? Um, the drawdown analysis as such doesn't say anything about that per se. It doesn't say, um, is this uh, private uh, you know, capital or is this capital mobilized by state actors um, and governments, the analysis doesn't, you know, either recommend or say what the, what the capital is that would move there. And I think that's one of the, if you take Paul's framing serious, sincerely of this, is this happening to us or for us? I think there are some opportunities that humanity has in front of us in terms of reforming our, the norms of the capital stack and how it actually gets mobilized into solutions and where those financial benefits um, get distributed to, uh, where they go. And I think there's a huge opportunity for humanity to um, reform and uh, innovate there to see a more a broad uh, distribution. Uh, that's kind of beyond the scope of drawdowns analysis, to say the least. But um, I think it is a huge opportunity, and we see signals and, and uh, momentum of in, uh, people taking action and innovating. So when you say great potential, what kind of things do you mean there, Kevin? Well, the uh, I think this is a in some ways too broad of a stroke. Yes. Uh, to, so um, forgive the oversimplification, but when you look at the analysis of these longitude, these long-term multi-decade type of operating savings and uh, costs, the type of capital formation that is, um, especially for, say, for example, the land use and agriculture solutions, is that the type of capital that's best suited for implementing these solutions with many site-specific and regional exceptions to this is patient in nature. So kind of 
eschewing the norm of you know short-term liquidity and quarterly return expectations this type of thing this uh so patient and, and long-term and modest in return so the numbers i've quoted in terms of the big picture return are are not small um but when you take into consideration time uh the returns that a number of these solutions portend to create I think, again, with many site-specific and regional exceptions to this, but at large, the return profiles are, uh, many seem to not be in alignment with the norms of the romanticized notion of outsized returns, market rate returns, and uh, near-term liquidity. So what that means is that a lot of the investments that I think are required and a lot of the capital formations that are required are patient and uh, more modest in return expectations, yes. um, which makes us think about how we think about things like risk. Um, what's the risk of making these investments and what's the return expectation that we place on them compared to what's the risk of not making these investments? Um, <laughs> Paul. When Paul is confronted with the question of, you know, what's the business case for doing implementing these solutions, he'll usually respond with something like, well, what's the business case of, you know, for double glazing the, the atmosphere, the planet and, you know, threatening the survival of humanity and potentially all life. You know, the, <laughs> the, the comparison is uh, I think humanity is a little bit skewed in our um, our analysis of risk. Absolutely. And so Absolutely, yes. I think the return expectations that are normal for capital, uh, and I say romanticized because I'm not sure there's there's some good rigorous analysis of the actual returns on capital um, over long periods of time in our you know significant financialized public equities markets, and those returns. I think are uh, there's an expectation that we associate with risk that is betrayed by reality, especially over long periods of time. And so the longer the period you look at, I, I think if we can move from the, what's normal in terms of our expectations, we'll see that these financial investments become self-evidently beneficial. And there are actors, there are funds, there are states that are innovating. Um, in early September here in the state of California, uh, there's going to be a global climate action summit. And I've been intrigued by looking at the themes related to how do we finance the state level NDCs to the Paris Accord? How do we finance these? And most of the, again, broad strokes here, but most of the theme is that innovation is required. Financial innovation is required. New financial instruments, or at least by instruments, it's, it's expectations oftentimes, both in terms of liquidity and timeframes. So I'm, I'm excited by that. And I, I, there's also innovation happening on leveraging the tremendous amount of wealth, especially in the affluent world amongst the average unaccredited investor citizen, that uh, the, the crowd, if you will. I, I'm excited to see some of the emergent um, possibilities for the crowd um, there's going to be, for example, at the Global Climate Action Summit, there's a, a session on banking. And banking is something that in, say, in, you know, the United States or North America, 
um, from an average citizen's savings um, being in the in financial institutions, that's a huge asset, um, a huge amount of resource, uh, and that resource could be dedicated towards these uh, patient, modest return outcomes of implementing climate solutions, and that work is actually happening. Um, it's still a small piece of that world, but it could be, again, is it happening to us or for us, this opportunity to embrace that uh, which is in front of us. Well, on that positive note, Kevin, I'd like to thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to us today and share the, 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 the great work that you've done on Drawdown. And I wish you the very best of success with the ongoing research I know you will be doing and the next layer of modeling. Uh, no simpler, I, I don't doubt. But uh, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Drawdown Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. We would really appreciate if you could help spread the word by leaving a rating on iTunes, sharing with your friends and on social media. You can find out more about Project Drawdown at drawdown.org. If you'd like to hear leading sustainability and environmental thinkers share their views on the biggest sustainability challenges we are facing, you can listen to the Sustainability Agenda podcast at the sustainabilityagenda.com, iTunes, as well as other leading podcast platforms including Stitcher, Podbean and Google Play.